Good morning, friends. It's good to be here with you this morning on Easter, or on Resurrection Sunday as we call it. And if you have your Bible, today we are kicking off with our scripture reading. So if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to go to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, it is on page 1290 in the Black Bible in front of you. If you do not have a hard copy of the scripture, I will also have the scripture up here if you want to follow along. Uh, But John chapter 19, verses 38 through 20, verse 10 for our scripture reading today. Uh, before we go any further, if you're new here, welcome to Calvary Bible Church. Thanks for coming on Easter to celebrate the Lord's resurrection with us today. And so today for our scripture reading, today is the story at Shocker on Easter. It's th- today is the story of the resurrection, John chapter 19, 38 through 20, verse 10. And we have, a, we have timed our time in the Gospel of John the last two years or so to arrive at the story of the resurrection on Resurrection Sunday this morning. And as we saw last week, we saw the crucifixion. We saw Jesus hung up on a tree, naked on the hill of Golgotha, to pay for the sins of the world. But then today we see the climax of all of human history, amen? That we see God's plan build and build towards redemption. And today we see the resurrection, that our redemption is full and is complete. It is finished. John chapter 19, verse 38 through 20 verse 10 says this, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for what? Fear of the Jews. He asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. And so he came and he took his body away. But then Nicodemus, that name probably sounds familiar, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, the hill of Golgotha, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Chapter 20, verse 1. And now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early, to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb and so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciples whom Jesus loved and John and said to them they have taken away our Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him and Peter and the other disciple went for John and they were going to the tomb and the two were running together And the other disciple ran ahead faster. Now, I'm not sure why John mentions that he's faster than Peter, but there you go. (laughs) Then Peter came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. But, of course, Simon Peter did. So Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth, notice this part, and the face cloth which which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture. What scripture is he talking about here? For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he might rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. Amen. Thus says the Lord. Let me pray real quick. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you that we can celebrate life. 
Lord, I pray. I, I pray for this morning, as I prayed earlier this week, that you would open the eyes of the blind. If there are people that do not know you as Lord and Savior of your life, that you would reveal to them the truth and that you would call them to yourself, that they would believe in your holy name and that would make you Lord of their life. We thank you for today that we can celebrate your life and your resurrection from the grave. And we lift it up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you do not have a hard copy, I would encourage you to go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. John chapter 19 is on page 1290 in the Black Bible directly in front of you if you do not have a hard copy. Today I'd like to talk to you about stepping out of the shadows. Stepping out of the shadows. For most of us, the tomb is like this. It's cold. It's hard. It's dull. But it's far from it. Amen? The empty tomb is a story that we've heard again and again and again and again. Every, every Easter, every preacher around the world has this one sermon for this particular day. Preachers talk today about the tomb. And today we look at the tomb, but not as a cold rock, but as an empty tomb. Not as a tomb that contains my Savior, but as an empty tomb that could not contain my Savior. Often we are more comfortable living life in the shadows, silently blending. We blend, we adapt, just like our shadow traces us wherever we go. We blend, we adapt, we adjust our conversations to the culture, the surroundings around us, and oftentimes taking our light the gospel, and putting it in a bushel for no one to see. Uh, This might strike a surprise to some of you, but believe it or not, I am a very shy person. Um, I I don't know if you... (laughs) I got some shocked looks in the room, but naturally speaking, if you knew me as a kid, well, most some of you knew me differently because I was comfortable, but for most of us... I, I was a very shy child. I, was, I am naturally a very hardcore introvert. And in fact, my greatest fear in life was public speaking, believe it or not. I guess the Lord has a sense of humor. He decided to torture me for a living. Um, but in high school and in college and even in seminary, I just never said a word in class, especially seminary. I was, I was the guy in the back of the room that never said anything, and, and unless I really wanted to ask a question, I would never raise my hand. I, I blended. I was in the shadows. I never caused problems. I never stuck my nose out there. But I look back on that time in, in classes, and, but why was I so quiet? Why did I never seem to contribute? I think it was more than just because I was shy. It was more than my upbringing The reason I blended into the shadows of all of my surroundings is because of Joseph of Arimathea. I cared what other people thought. I was terrified. Can anybody relate to this? I was terrified of the the scolding look of my teacher, even though I knew the right answer. This is how most of us live every day. We live in the shadows. We relegate faith to days of the week instead of every day of the week. We decide when faith is pertinent instead of persistent. We leave our faith in the shadows. We all do, including the preacher up front. We all, 
whenever we are uncomfortable, whenever we are, are, are in a new surrounding, or whenever we're at our place where we live, we, we, we take our faith and we put it in the shadows. We put it under a bushel, as the old children's song says. And why, but why, why do we live our faith in the shadows? Today I want to turn that on its head. I want for us to step out of the shadows with our faith. Today I want to talk to you about what it means to take our faith out from the shadows, to take our faith and put it on a lampstand, to be bold. I want us to talk about stepping out of the shadows. And the reason we're talking about this today is because we see two men who have a lot to lose. We see two men who are formerly uncomfortable. We see two men find the worth of the Savior and they decide in that exact moment to step out with their faith and do something very bold to proclaim the cross of Christ to all that see Him. Today we see two men who formerly lived in the shadows. One was Joseph and one was Nicodemus and they step out on faith. Today we answer the question, how can we step out of the shadows? And we, we answer this question, we step out of the shadows of the tomb to be bold for the kingdom of Christ when we answer four different questions. Question number one is, what is the tomb? Question number two is, what happened at the tomb? How do we know the tomb was empty and why is the empty tomb important? So if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to look at it with me. Really, this passage breaks down into two main sections. You have 1938 through 42 is the burial, and then you have chapter 20, verses 1 through 10 is the resurrection. And today is a story that probably all of us are familiar with. We've, we've heard the story of the empty tomb. We've heard the story of the resurrection. And in fact, if you only come to church for Christmas and Easter, you probably think in the back of your mind that preachers only talk about the birth and the resurrection of Jesus because that's what we discuss on these two days. But the story of the empty tomb is not, to, to many of us, it's just dead. It's cold. It's hard. It's stale. It's like the bread we left out last night. But the tomb is not dry. It is not dead. And it is not empty. Amen? Because our Savior lives. And this one story, the story of the resurrection, changes everything about our lives. And it changes everything about the world. What is the empty tomb? Where we pick up in John chapter 19, if you remember the story, Pilate, you've probably heard his name before, Pontius Pilate, the, the Roman governor over Judea, in, earlier in John chapter 19, he sat on the pavement. What is that? That is in modern day the judge's bench, and he slams his gavel and he sentences an innocent man to death. Because why? Because he feared the opinions of the crowd and the opinions of Rome more than he, more than doing the right thing. And then Jesus was crucified, despite his innocence. And there our Savior on the hill of Golgotha, our Savior, our King, our Messiah, the Lamb of God, hung naked on a tree, the hill of the skull, outside of the city of Jerusalem for the entire nation to see. And yet, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus saw the cross not as an object of shame or torture, but as an object of joy. Why? That's amazing. Think about the cross. Jesus hung there on a hill for the world to see. And then this object of torture meant to be very shameful. Jesus saw as an object of joy. Why? 
Because to tell us that it is finished. That on the cross, my Savior died, fulfilling the desire and the will of the Father. Paying for my soul in full. Atoning as the perfect sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. To tell us that it is finished. And there on that cross, my Savior died with his With nails in his hands and in his feet, he paid the price for you and me. But Christianity, many of us think that the cross is the end. We think that the cross is the climax of Christianity, but it is not. The empty tomb is the climax of Christianity, because in the empty tomb, Jesus rises again to prove that my soul is truly purchased in full. What is the tomb? First off, the tomb is not a cold rock, but it is empty. Second, the tomb is the climax of all of human history. Time itself changed. Redemption changed. Millions of lives were changed. The empty tomb, third, proves my Savior lives. We'll talk about this here in just a minute, but the linens left behind in the empty tomb prove that my Savior lives, and the lives of the disciples prove that the tomb is not a cold rock, but rather our King now sits on His heavenly throne. Number four, the tomb is the cornerstone of our faith. For if Jesus Christ raised from the dead, then He will what? That He will raise us from the dead. Fifth, the empty tomb and the resurrection of Christ Jesus turned death from the end to eternal life. What is the empty tomb? It is the climax of human history. It proves my Savior lives. It is the cornerstone of our hope, and it turns death from something to fear to freedom and eternal life. How can we step out of the shadows of our faith by realizing that the tomb is empty? Christ stepped out of the shadow of the tomb to prove to you and to me that our soul is purchased in full. His blood is the payment for my sin, and His resurrection is our receipt to prove that we are purchased. What does it say? Romans chapter 4, verse 25. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions was raised because of our justification. So what is the empty tomb? Then what actually happened at the tomb? Question number two this morning. What actually happened? Well, if you have your text, we see two parts, but there's actually a third one stuck in there that's not mentioned in the Gospel of John, that's mentioned in all the other Gospel accounts, especially in Matthew's sake. But the first thing that happened is that Jesus was buried. Duh, right? Okay. But why, why, okay, why is it important? That Jesus to be buried. Because it proves it wasn't a hoax. That Jesus truly died, was buried in the grave for three days. Notice with me in your text, if you have John chapter 19, verse 38. Who actually comes to take Jesus off of the cross? We would expect one of the twelve. But it is a man that steps out of the shadows. Verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. Who, who is this man named Joseph? Well, number one, it says that he is a disciple of Jesus Christ. What does that word disciple mean? It means that he is a follower of Jesus Christ. But then notice what it says second. It says that 
he was a secret one for fear of the Jews. Joseph lived in the shadows. He is a secret disciple. He doesn't want what? People to know that he follows Jesus. Why? Because he has a lot to lose. Let me just say something real quick. I'm off script. Um, some of us here today are Joseph of Arimathea. We live our faith in the shadows. We don't share our faith through our life, love, and lingo. We hide it because we have a lot to lose in our mind. Joseph takes this moment. He sees Jesus. He recognizes Jesus' worth on the cross. And he steps out of the shadows of his faith. And he takes Jesus off of the cross and puts him in a tomb. Joseph has a lot to lose. Why? Number three, he is a member of the Sanhedrin. According to other gospel accounts, Joseph is part of the council. He is part of the Sanhedrin. Now, what is that? The Jewish Sanhedrin is the Jewish Supreme Court. It is 72 of the most prominent men in the entire nation of Israel. And Joseph has a lot to lose. He is fearful of losing his position. He is important. And who else is a member of the Sanhedrin? A guy named Nicodemus. Number four, he is, secret. He is a secret disciple because he was rich. Number four, Joseph is rich. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, and he is wealthy. Why do I say he is wealthy? I think the text says it, but, but he, I mean, think about it. He, he bought a rock, okay? He bought a rock in the middle of the city, or close to the city at least, and he had somebody chisel out of this rock a tomb for himself. Now, could you imagine going to the city and asking for a permit to, uh, to carve out a big spring park, a tomb for yourself, okay? That's kind of what's going on here. You'd have to be pretty loaded, okay, to, to, to bribe the city to put your tomb right there in the spring, right above it. Joseph is wealthy. He, he carved out of a rock a tomb for himself, for no one has been laid. Joseph has a lot to lose. That's why he is hidden for so long. He is part, he's one of the most, 72 most important men in all of Israel, and he is wealthy. Number five, according to Luke's account, Joseph is a good and upright man. This man who took Jesus' body, who lived in the shadows with his faith, put his faith under a bushel, and he hid it, and he, according to the scripture, Luke 23, it says he was a good and upright man. Let me just say something real quick to you all, to those tuning in online. Some of us would consider ourselves a good and upright person. Some of us here today would probably say that our good outweighs our bad. But what does it say of Joseph? It says that he is a good and upright man. But what? Joseph still sees his need of Jesus. He still sees Jesus' worth. He still understands at this exact moment in time that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world, that he is Savior, that he is Messiah, and that he is King. Amen? And Joseph, who is this good and upright person, realizes his need for Jesus. Some of you are Joseph. Some of you are good, and you are upright, and maybe you are diligent to make sure that your good outweighs your bad, and maybe the world around you would classify you as a good and upright person, but what does it say in the scripture? 
Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That there is no one that is righteous. There is no, not one. There is no one that is perfect. There is no one that can stand before a perfect God without blemish and without shame and without sin. That's why Christ came. That's why we need Him. What does it say in James chapter 2, verse 10? Whoever keeps the whole law. So if we go 51 miles an hour on the parkway, okay, we're not keeping the law, okay, but it is kind of ridiculous. I mean, I've said that two weeks in a row, I think. We need to petition the city, bump that thing up. Whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles in one point, he is guilty of all. Joseph is a good and upright man, and still he needs Jesus. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's why Jesus Christ came. If everybody was good enough to earn to heaven, to get into heaven, we don't need Jesus. He died to pay for the sins of the world, a propitiation for our soul, the satisfaction of the Father. He placed upon him the iniquity of us all. Friends, listen to me. If, if, if nothing else happens today, those of you who see yourself as Joseph of Arimathea, that you are a good and upright person, that your good outweighs your bad, if nothing else happens, then I would encourage you to open your eyes to the truth that you need Jesus, that he came and he died for you, and that the tomb is empty. Amen? And the empty tomb is our receipt of purchase, that my soul is purchased in full by the blood of Christ. Lord, open the eyes of the blind. Joseph is a good and upright man. Number six, he is brave. He is brave. Think about it. Joseph is the one that goes to Pilate, asks for Jesus' body, takes him off the cross, down the hill, and places him in his very own tomb that he spared no expense for, that is near the hill of Golgotha in the garden that is theirs, what it says in the text. And Joseph takes Jesus bravely, going to Pilate and burying him in his own tomb. Why do I say he's brave? Why do I say that Joseph is brave? Well, think about who saw Jesus. That Jesus was stripped naked, put on a hill. Why? So that everybody would see him. And he is there. He is, he is killed on a cross for the whole world to see. So the entire city of Jerusalem is seeing Jesus on full display. Him in the middle and the robbers on the other side. And what, is, what time of year is it in this Israel? It's Passover. Okay, what well, is that significant? Passover. Every Jew from all around the nation of Israel is coming into the city of Jerusalem to, to celebrate that feast and to remember the exodus out of Egypt. So what am I saying here? That everyone in the entire nation of Israel saw Jesus crucified. What is Joseph doing in that exact moment? The moment he takes Jesus off of the cross, he takes the nails out of his hands, out of his feet, the moment he takes him and receives him, he is associating himself with Jesus and the sacrifice of, of the Son of God. He is brave at that exact moment. Joseph no longer is in the shadows. He steps out 
and exclaims to the world, to all of his other members on the Sanhedrin, to all those that respect him and look up to him, that he is in need of Jesus and that he is a disciple of Christ. This man named Joseph steps out of the shadows. He is no longer a secret disciple. Why? Because he beholds Christ's worth. How do we step out of the shadows with our faith? We behold Christ's worth. We understand why he is worthy for us to follow and to claim. But who comes with him? Do you notice that? Verse 39. And Nicodemus also came bringing a mixture Excuse me, verse 39. And Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night. Why? Because again, Nicodemus is a member of the Sanhedrin. He doesn't want to be classified with Jesus. So in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. Who had first come to him by night. Also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds in weight. Now I don't know what a hundred pounds of myrrh and aloe looks like. But I would imagine it's large, okay? Uh, I saw James this week towed in about 100 pounds of water, and that was something that you would have to see, right? And uh, just imagine Nicodemus, <laughs> I'm sure he had service, but just imagine Nicodemus like waddling into the tomb with all this myrrh and aloe with 100 pounds of it. What is he doing? He is claiming the cross. He is once in the shadows, but now he steps out to mix together the myrrh and the aloes. Notice the rest of the story. Verse 40, So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Verse 41, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, in the garden a new tomb in which no one had laid before. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Nicodemus and his servants would take this mixture of aloe and myrrh, this this fragrant aroma, and they would take it and they would mix it together and they would lay it between the layers of linen to overcome the smell of decay and death. Nicodemus, this guy, that, that, that one time, Lived in the shadows. The visit Jesus is by night. He steps out bringing this gigantic pile. I have no idea how big it was. But I'm sure it was huge. And he is claiming to be a follower of Christ with that myrrh and aloe. Myrrh. Where do you recognize that from? Yeah, Christmas, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The wise men brought it to Jesus, not at his birth, probably when he was about two years old. And myrrh at that time represented that Jesus was Savior, that he was the Lamb of God to be sacrificed for the world. And here we see it again used in the Scripture to confirm that Jesus truly is sacrificed and that he is the Savior and the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God in his sovereignty and in his great plan mixes these two together, showing that that baby that was in a manger, it truly is the Savior of the world. Nicodemus no longer hides in the shadows. He steps out. This man named Nicodemus is no longer a secret disciple, but he beholds his worth. How do we step out of the darkness, the shadows with our faith? We behold the worth of Christ. There's no other explanation. I mean, there's no other explanation for these men 
who have so much to lose. They are respected. They are wealthy. There's no other explanation for these men to come out of hiding and to show that they are true followers of Jesus Christ. Other than that they see that Christ is worthy. Is he worthy? Do you believe he is? Let me just say something. Um, I was in Walton's this week, going to lunch with a friend of mine, and uh, I prayed at that dinner table that the Lord would open the eyes of the blind. First off, some of us think we are good and upright. We think that because we are, we can earn our way to heaven. But we wouldn't tell anybody that. Of course, we, we, we believe in Jesus. Of course, he died for me. Of course. But secretly, deep down inside, we really believe that we are good enough, but we're not. And some of us here today are Nicodemus, and we are just Joseph. That we are believers, we are followers, but we keep it to ourselves. We all, can I just say this? We all struggle with that. This guy included. This guy, this guy. When we behold the worth of Christ, let us step out of the shadows with our faith and be bold for the kingdom. But then notice the second half of the story. Notice with me, John chapter 20. If you notice with me, you see Mary Magdalene come on the scene in verses 1 and 2. But I'm going to just kind of insert really quick. You see Jesus' burial in chapter 19, and then you see the resurrection in chapter 20. But what we don't really see is kind of what happened in between the two. What happened before sunrise on that Sunday morning. According to Matthew chapter 27, guards were sent, sealed, and scattered to guard the tomb of Jesus Christ. It says that the chief priests approached Pilate. They approached him saying that we want to put a whole bunch of Roman soldiers because they said that Jesus would be raised again and we don't want his disciples to steal his body and to claim that he rose again. This is in Matthew chapter 27, verse 65. Pilate said to them, these chief priests who were asking for a guard, you have a guard. Go and make it as secure as you know how. This is a top secret vault that some of you work on, on the arsenal, okay? This is about as protected as it possibly gets. And they went and made the grave secure. And all along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. They put a guard, they sealed the stone, and rolled the rock in front. That is top secret vault stuff here. Saturday night, Pilate posts soldiers. And Sunday morning before daybreak, Matthew's account says that there is a violent earthquake and some kind of divine anesthesia knocks the soldiers out and they Jesus raises from the dead and before sunrise the soldiers wake up see that the tomb is empty now if you did you fell asleep at the job especially as a soldier well, you probably wouldn't go tell the authorities, but what do they do? They then go in Matthew chapter 28 to the people that hired them and said, "Oh, by the way, we fell asleep." And then the chief priests in Matthew chapter 28, verse 13, give these soldiers a large sum of money, more than Judas got for the 30 pieces of silver for betraying his Savior. They gave him a large sum of money, and they said to the soldiers, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were sleeping. If they were sleeping, how would they know that the disciples stole him away? That makes no sense. So you see the burial, we see the earthquake, the soldiers, and then we come Sunday. At sunrise, Mary Magdalene, the woman who Jesus cast out seven demons out of her in Luke chapter 8, she comes to the tomb and notice her reaction. Now on the first day 
of the week, Mary Magdalene, came early to the tomb while it was still dark. Notice that phrase, and we'll talk about it here in just a moment. Already taken away. On the, now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark. Does that sound familiar? Where, where, where did we hear that before? Matthew chapter, or excuse me, John chapter 18, verse 28. It's the same Greek word there, pro-way. It is, means at sunrise. It is the same word used when Jesus comes before Pilate at daybreak. So think about the last... 48 hours. 48 hours ago, Jesus was brought before Pilate at the fourth trial. You had the three before this Jewish, honest Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. And then trial number one is for Pontius Pilate at daybreak. 48 hours ago, Jesus is brought before Pilate by sunset on Friday. Jesus is dead. He lays in the tomb three calendar days. Friday evening, Saturday, and Sunday. Then Sunday before sunrise, a violent earthquake comes. The soldiers are left in a stupor, and Jesus rose again. And then Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb, and what does she see? She sees that the tomb is rolled away, and she is perplexed. She doesn't understand. Notice what it says in verse 2 of chapter 20. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, we know that as John, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we did not know where they had laid him. Clearly, I'm going I'm to propose something. I think that this moment in Mary Magdalene's life is probably the bottom. She was already sad that Jesus died on a cross, that her friend, that the man that cast you know, seven demons out of her has already died. But now she goes to the tomb and she says, he's missing. If there's evidence that the disciples and Mary Magdalene didn't steal the body, this is it. She is just as shocked as anybody. And then notice Peter and John. Notice what they do, verse 3. So Peter and the other disciples went forth and there, and they were going to the tomb. And the Two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead of him and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings there, but he did not go in. What does it say? John looked in, and like Peter, Peter went in. And what did they expect to see? They expected to see a dead body wrapped in bloody linens with a crown of thorns on his head, with myrrh and aloes sprinkled through the linens over his body to cover the smell. And what did Peter find? He found absolutely nothing except for linens. I want you to notice something, though, with me. I'm going to point it out here in just a second. Notice the linens themselves. So Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linens lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but notice this part, but rolled up in a place by itself. Now, I've got to be honest. I, I've never seen that in the text before, before this week. And I find that last detail to be absolutely magnificent. Verse 7. And the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself, the Savior rose from the dead, going through the linens in his body, and then he takes the linen wrappings off of his head, and he rolls them up and puts them in a place by itself. Why? He wants his disciples to know the truth, that he is alive from the dead. I believe Jesus in the tomb is telling them, Hey guys, I know you don't understand, but look at the lens. Look at my face. I am alive from the dead. I have resurrected. And they do not 
understand it, but I believe that Jesus is giving them a sign. He's telling them, I am at work, I understand what's going on, I am sovereign, I am the Son of God, I am Savior. Just look at the linens and verify that I am in control. That morning when Jesus rose from the dead, he took off the linens from his face. With the imprint of the crown of thorns, he balls them up, places them to the side, signaling to his disciples that Jesus was not stolen, he was not missing, but he was alive. And notice what it says in verse 8. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then entered and he saw and believed. That is the theme of the Gospel of John, right? Amen. I mean, if I had bored you with that verse, I am sorry. John chapter 20, verse 31. That these things have been written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing in him you may have life in his name. Now we don't know what type of faith this is, but clearly John's faith at least expands. He sees the linens. He goes in. He's shy at first. And then he goes in and he saw the linens. And if the face cloth wasn't significant, it wouldn't be mentioned, friends. He saw the face cloth and he said, okay, my Savior is no longer dead. He is no longer stolen, but that he is alive from the dead, a receipt of purchase of our soul. His blood paid for my sin in full. And then notice what it says in verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. What, what? What scripture testifies to the resurrection of our Lord? Can you think of an Old Testament scripture that, that talks about the resurrection, that predicts it? I'll give you a hint. It's in the midst of the most famous passage about the crucifixion and the resurrection. One that we read last week. Yeah, I'm hearing it. Matthew, Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus predicts that he will die and that he will resurrect. But where does it say in the Old Testament that he will rise again from the dead? Isaiah chapter 53. What it, his grave. Now, I want, there's so much here. I, I, I'm just going to read it. And I don't have time to unpack everything. His grave was assigned with wicked men. And notice this next part. This is Isaiah 53. Can we get any more uh, vivid? Yet he was with a rich man in his death. Some 600 years before Jesus even came on the scene. This is predicted. Who's the rich man who was with him in his death? Joseph of Arimathea. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Why? To pay for the sins of the world. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, and he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. How will he see the offspring? How will he prolong his days? That is referring to the resurrection, that 500 years before Jesus even comes on the scene, that it is predicted now that Jesus will die for the sins of the world, that he took on my iniquities, but that he will rise again, and that his coronation as king over the universe will be completed. Isaiah 53 is referring to his resurrection, verse 9 and 10. In this passage, I I guess I don't have enough time to talk about all of it, we see all of the aspects of Jesus' life. We see his maturation, we see his death, we see the reason for his death, we see the resurrection, and then we see the coronation. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, sees the linens. He doesn't fully understand, he can't put it all together, but he sees the face cloth balled up by itself, and he believes in Jesus Christ at that exact moment. How do we step out of the shadows of our faith? Number one, we behold Christ's worth. And number two, we behold Christ's work in our lives. 
We see the linens Christ has left us behind. Christ left behind a sign neatly folded up, knowing that they would enter into that Sunday morning. And those neatly folded linens were a sign that Jesus was alive. Let me just ask you the question. We step out of the shadows with our faith by beholding Christ's worth and by looking at the linens. And what in the world am I talking about? Let me just ask you a question. What are the linens that God has left behind in your life? What are times in your life where you can look back and say that the Lord was working? So many times, friends, just listen to me real quick. When we go through something, it's hard for us to see how God is working. It's usually only until we actually look back at the totality of the picture of, of God can we really understand how He is working. Listen, what are the linens in your life? What are the things that God has arranged by His sovereign will to confirm to you that He is alive and that He is working in your life? Maybe you came close to death and the Lord rescued you. Maybe you prayed a prayer and the Lord answered. Maybe God provided you a blessing like a child that that confirmed you that God was working. What are the linens that God has left behind to confirm that he is alive and that he is working in your life? What was the tomb? It was the climax of human history. It is the proof my Savior lives. It is the cornerstone of our hope. It is... It turns fear of death into freedom from death. What happened at the tomb? He was buried. The Roman soldiers were hit on the head somewhat and ran away. And then Jesus rose from the dead. How do we know the tomb was empty? There, there are some people that propose that the bodies, that, that Jesus' body was stolen, but they can't be. How do we know that the tomb was empty? First off, the, the, the rock was rolled back. The linens left behind. The shock of the disciples... The disciples were martyred. Eleven out of the twelve died for their faith. And the twelfth out of the twelfth, John, was, was exiled to the island of Patmos for his faith. No one dies for a lie. Amen? So if, if Jesus' resurrection was faked, how do you explain them dying for it? The tomb is empty. He is raised from the dead. How else do we know that the tomb is empty? He appeared to 500 witnesses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And oh, by the way, there are five different written eyewitness accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and a guy named Paul. And why is the tomb important? It secures our redemption. It is our receipt of purchase. It secures our future that since Christ raised from the dead, he will raise us up too. It secures our victory over sin, Romans chapter 8, and it shows victory over death. I know that was like a fire hose. Okay. My question for you is this this morning, is how do we step out of the shadows with our faith? We step out when we understand Christ's worth and we see the linens. The fact, let me just say something real quick. Um, the fact that you are here today, maybe, maybe you don't feel close to God, maybe you're here because a family member asked you to come, I don't know. Um, but the fact that you are even here today tells me that you have some sense of worth and value in Him. If you have never trusted in Christ Jesus, open your eyes to the truth. Be like Joseph of Arimathea, who is a good, an upright man. He doesn't lie, cheat, or steal. He is good, but he still sees 
his need of the Savior, and he believes and comes out of hiding. Behold Christ's worth. If you are a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus, I would encourage you this week just to look at his worth. Go to Philippians chapter 2, Isaiah 53, the, the, the book of Ephesians, uh, go on and on, the, the book of Revelation. But then second, I would encourage you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to look at the linens, the signs that God is alive and working in your life. Have you ever just stopped? We are so busy in our culture, amen, we can't even drive without watching YouTube, okay? It's dangerous. Don't do that, okay? It's a mess out there. But we are so crazy. I mean, <laughs> I'd be curious what people who weren't born in the 21st century would see of the art of society. Anyway, moving on. Because it's crazy. I mean, we're so bombarded by stimuli, amen? We can't even drive our car without texting and driving. Don't do that either. Um, conviction. Um, sorry. Um, Siri. Um, that's what it is. Um, have you ever stopped, put down the phone, and just looked at how God has worked in your life? Have you just seen the blessings He's given to you? Have you ever recognized the linens that confirm that He is alive and that He is working in your life? Friends, let us step out of the shadows. Let us not hide our faith under a basket. But let us put it on a lampstand for the world to see. And how do we do that? When we understand His worth and we understand how He has worked in our lives. Very quickly, before I close, as I've already mentioned, some of us here today are good and upright. We probably, some of us would say that our good, our ways are bad, but that doesn't really count. It doesn't earn your way to heaven. There's not enough good works that you can do to build a bridge to get into the heaven. That's why Jesus Christ died and he came. He rose again on the third day to prove that your soul is purchased in full. Lord, open the eyes of the blind. If you have never believed in Christ Jesus, if you have never been born again, if you are not a new creation, maybe you just know the truth that Jesus Christ came and he died for your sin. Maybe you just understand that, but you've never believed. There's a difference between those two. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, and you will have then earthly abundant life and eternal life. Before I close, I'm going to break all the rules again this week. My seminary professor told me not to do this, but I'm going to do it anyways. Um, I'm going to read a passage that summarizes the whole life of Christ. It summarizes his maturation as a young man. It summarizes his death, the reason for his death. It summarizes his resurrection and his coronation. And you guessed it. I'm going to reread Isaiah 53 to close our service. This is what it says. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord, arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men would hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him, stricken, 
smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourgings we are healed. But all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord, his father, was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, If he would render himself as a guilt offering for the sins of the world, then he would rise again and he would see his offspring and prolong his days. That is the message of Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, I know, Lord, that we have heard the story of the resurrection before, most likely. And, Lord, I just pray that we would see it as it is, that the the tomb is empty and it is your victory lap over sin, that your your death paid for my soul, and that your resurrection proved it was paid, it is a receipt of purchase. Lord, I just thank you for this morning. I thank you for all those that are here and those tuning in online. I thank you that they value and they do see you as worthy to follow. And I pray that if they do not know you as Savior. They don't know you as Lord. Maybe they just know you intellectually, but they've never believed in you. They've never opened up their life to you. I pray that they would do so. They would not wait. But on this Easter in 2022, that they would believe in the Son of God as Savior of the world. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.